This episode of Story Comic Presents is sponsored by JanusPointPress.com. Watch out for wormholes. Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 321. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're honored to have with us the internationally celebrated, famed Vermont author, literary consultant, and founder of the Writer's Center of White River Junction, Joni B. Cole. I think you have the wrong guest on, Barney. <laughs> that international part, I'm not so sure about. I'll take it. I'll take it. It's true, though. It's true. Yes, it, it is, is yeah. true. I once yeah, taught see. somebody who lived in France. I taught them creative writing, so that counts. <laughs> see? I see. I tell you, yeah. There you go. I mean, so yeah. you've been around. You've been you've been writing books. You've been you've been you've been writing books for a while. You have seven books out as of this recording and you just had your latest book came out as of this recording about uh, uh a month or so ago correct the yes, uh, a month ago in like september 20... yes okay see all right party like is 2044 and this is not one of the books that you've written that actually is more of a like a uh, like a, a writing handbook for for writers this is actually one of your Ess- your books of essays, correct? Correct. Yeah, it's a collection of personal essays. Right. So. so talk to us a bit about this. How did you have time to get this book together with everything else that you do as well? <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Well, that's a big black hole, Barney. I have no idea. <laughs> But I know one thing, I'm kind of tired. So, but well, you know, a part of it came together during COVID when what else do you do? And I really was like a house on fire. I just, just honed in on um, particularly my own writing, which had taken a bit of a backseat because I teach so much. And that said, I continued to teach and during that period and the teaching fed the writing and, you know, and also there's nothing like a deadline and I had a contract. So, you know, you kind of have to focus and write, but in some ways, um, the writing beget the writing, you know, when you really are in that habit of writing, I feel like, or at least speaking personally, I'm more creative ideas come. I'm always writing, even when I'm not in front of the computer. So, so um, it wasn't easy, but I did feel like I was in a real creative phase when I wrote this book. Like the, the theme of this, some of it's humorous essays. Some of it has a, a more of a serious tone. How did you were able yeah. to arrange the, the, the stories and the essays in a certain order? Yeah, well, the book is weird as a collection of essays because, <laughs> first of all, some are traditional essays and are, um, y- y- you know, written in that way. And clearly, I'm the narrator, and they're about experiences I've had in life. But there's a strong handful of them that are really one-off weirdo essays. Like one is a letter from me to the man that was the inspiration for Dracula, Vlad the Impaler. And one is a exaggeration of me when I had the job of a program director at a boutique literary festival. So while it starts out sort of like me, this character, this performative eye goes off the deep end. Another one is a, a screenplay, a short screenplay about a very 
traumatic event that happened that I thought a screenplay format would would serve, that format would serve. And then some are, are flat out humor essays. And so thematically, I thought it was all over the place, which could have made it a very difficult book to sell because most collections, there's some undercurrent. It's about grieving or motherhood or aging or something. And mine, my pieces were all over the place and I did not have a theme that asserted itself until the end. And when I saw what that was, I slightly arranged the pieces a little differently so that that theme came through perhaps. But I also see each of these essays as just, you know, they've got to work standing alone and you don't have to read them in order and you don't have to read this collectively. And it depends on what mood you are, which one you pick back front, whatever. So the reviewers, particularly the early editorial reviewers talked about, it's the voice that holds them all together. The, the sense of humor, the, the style of writing, the quality of the writing. So if, if there's a real unity in the book, it is through my voice, my, my perspective. And then also about the, the splotch, the splotch on that, when you talk about the four mile tour. Yeah. That essay was born of desperation because, you know, like I said, I was under contract and, um, and so there's really no room for downtime. And, and part of that downtime isn't in the writing process. It's in finding a piece I want to write. What's my next idea and my next idea. And so in a, I, I tend to go jogging a couple of times, four or five times a week. And I often do the same four mile run. And that is a really good resource for creative flow when you're moving or jogging, especially when you jog slowly, like I do, it allows for creative inspiration. But I was like, I got to think of my next essay. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll write about this four mile run. And, <laughs> and at first it seemed like that's about as lame as you can get, but it has a really important theme to me that I had to tease out for myself, but it stops at different landmarks on the run and it's treated and written almost as if it's one of those tourist brochures, you know, 10 things you must see when you go to Italy or when you go to, you know, Naples or when you go here. But I said, you know, eight things or whatever you must see on Joni's four mile run. <laughs> but it it had a theme that emerged which was related to how much, though, even when we are just doing something that's very ordinary or something repetitive that we do a lot, how much goes through our head, how much we're affected by the drama and the trauma of everyday events, how much we think about, you know, one of the first stops on that tour, if you will, is the elementary school where my kids went to school and when they were younger. And every time I run by, you know, and a kid starts laughing or screaming on the playground, I have this jolt, you know, about, uh oh, is there, is there something bad going on? We're so programmed for violence and, and then other spots on the run, you know, evoke other things. And um, so like, and some are lighter, some are heavier, but I think my most, my most harsh critic said it worked. So I'll assume that that essay worked. And, and so who's the audience? for this book then? Um, yeah, well, you know, I think that it is the, the readers who really like smart essays that are pretty edgy and that have humor. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it, 
I'm not sure I would say this, but it it has been compared, or the readers, the audience have been compared to compared to the audience of fans of David Sedaris, for example. So writing about family experiences, right, and then the humor and the writing kind of accumulate into a story that suddenly packs a punch. So you know, some certainly there is an overlap there, um, but yeah, and I was surprised because I thought. This was really naive of me, but more women would gravitate towards this book. And I swear on Amazon and more of the the emails that I get, they're at least 50% men, you know, and and offer enough feedback and substance that I know they're really reading it and really do value the book. So I don't know. You never know. I think it's a good lesson for writers. Don't, Don't narrow your audience necessarily so who knows it's for for anybody who wants a a good book and make to make me happy (laughs) by reading it (laughs) so So, let me ask you this because this is the seventh book you've published um how is was this a book that you've been kind of thinking about for a while or is this something that you you're happy you wrote six books before you wrote this one yeah um this is my second essay collection and, right. you know, I think that each book helped pave the way for the next way, you mm-hmm. know, and to write something that's solely from your heart and to write trusting, I can make something out of my four mile run. I can make something out of these externally anyway, little stories takes a bit of confidence. And so the other books certainly help boost that confidence when the first three were a part of a big, big project almost. Um and right. so that felt like a good way to sort of start. And then I have two books for writers, and that's just a subject, teaching creative writing. The creative process is a huge area of interest for me. And then I had written another collection of essays, and now this one. So it, the evolution of my writing life felt like this. it was time to do this. I really wanted my own voice, and I really wanted to explore some of my own stories, too, So and my own humor and stretch myself. So I... I was grateful for that contract and for the space and time to write this. And now I'm working on another collection so I can kind of reinforce mm-hmm. more stories and things like that. So we'll see. So for those that uh, might not understand it, that are that, that passively read and not maybe full on readers, uh, explain the difference between an essay and a short story. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Well, for me, one of the distinctions is that a short story I think of is a fictional work Hmm. and an essay, uh, a personal essay, because there's all sorts of different essays. There's op-ed essays, there's thought pieces, um, uh, but a personal essay like mine is based on a real experience and you're sharing that experience in a way that uses many of the same fictional techniques that a short story does. It's scenic. You want to immerse the reader in that experience using, you know, scenic techniques, the same as a piece of fiction will do, but it's not made up. But that said, in personal narratives, sometimes you conflate time. There's a saying, truth over facts. You don't do pull a James Fry and just make stuff up out of, you know, whole cloth. But you might leave a, a character out of a scene because they weren't relevant to that you're trying to get at, you know, but there's big no-nos. You don't exaggerate. You don't make up. But the weird thing about my collection is, and it is the same with David Sedaris's pieces often, you'll find a good, healthy handful of those where clearly it is exaggerated. Clearly it is a character that's being made up. The The thing that though I feel, I feel still allows for it to be 
in a collection of essays is a a generous publisher who says okay you can put those in there but b that underneath that that story if you will that fictionalized account is still your truth Mm. so um so that i think is a different point a strong different point in a short story and an essay so right Watch out for wormholes, because a good book is a wormhole, whether it's paper or pixels. Explore our artist books and chat books, including the winning 2022 Chautauqua Janus Prize Lecture at JanusPointPress.com. And sign up for news of our upcoming sci-fi, sensual, and literary collection, Event Horizon. This short story collection on cosmic decisions and their impact is written by award-winning author Stephanie Nina Pizzarillos and features comics, prose, photography, and original canvas work by an array of exciting artists. Visit JanicePointPress.com. Because there's about there's over 30 chapters in this. So there's over 30 essays in this. I think so, yeah. You, yeah. How did you arrange them? How did you arrange the chapters? Yeah, that's a fun exercise near the end of the whole process, you know, right. and um, one way is related to what we were just talking about. Like I said, there's a strong handful of essays that are just weirdo. One to, you know, me <laughs> writing to Vlad the Impaler or, you know, the one in the form of a screenplay. So some of it was mathematical. I didn't want to front load those you know, or just clump them. And so I dispersed those essays um, throughout in kind of a mathematical way. There's one also that's all just Amazon reviews that I envisioned I for this book that was coming out. So, and it's called The Real Reason Writers Hate Amazon. And um, so I just mathematically dispersed them. And then, you know, the, the tone of some, you know, seemed to work better. That said, I don't think people read a collection like this necessarily in order. But I still wanted to make sure that that when you turn the page, there was a totally fresh approach in the next one. So who knows if I did? I I did pay more attention to the first and the last essay because I don't know, Barney. Is that how you read it? For me, yeah. a collection. I'll read the last one first, or you know, or if I'm browsing, then it will be the first one. And and so there was a method to my madness in positioning, particularly the first and the last essay. The last essay to me feels really hopeful in a weird way. And so why not end with that? And the first essay kind of set the stage of a lot of characters I kept referencing my partner. And so, um, so I made that the first one. So I don't know. I, I hope it worked. <laughs> it didn't not work. Right. <laughs> my qu Another question I was thinking about this is that you, you also, as we say, you also write writing hand writers handbooks. And so you're like a writer's writer. How much do you feel like you're under the microscope when you actually write other prose books to wonder what other people who <laughs> read your writing handbooks will think? Oh my God. I, if I think about that too much, I freak out <laughs> and it amazes me. One of my best achievements I think is that I can kind of bury that huge worry while I'm writing, because if I thought of that, you know, right. in a good sense, it also makes me never want to cut corners. I don't think I would anyway. I'm just that kind of writer. It's like, unless like 
every verb has to be right. You know, I want to end every paragraph the right way. And of course I do a billion revisions. So maybe I have that in me anyway, but certainly if I'm going to go out and say, now I'm telling you how to write and do creative writing, I feel like there is a bar that I need to um, ascend to. And that, that feedback that I've gotten um, from party like it's 2044, I'm thrilled when people do recognize that because the book is very accessible, I think, and and my style can be very conversational. But a lot of people see the the brushstrokes that I that I hit, you know, to achieve that conversational style. And so I'm like, yeah, score, you know. <laughs> so so um, yeah, it, there is a there is a bit of pressure, and uh, I hope, thankfully, can kind of just put it aside right. sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> mention those brushstrokes again like what what are some of those writing techniques that you that you've been very good at talking to being a consultant and being a trainer what are some of those techniques that you're that you're yeah. proud that they've noticed yeah well in an essay in a traditional personal essay there is a form that often works it's not formulaic but it is a form that adheres to how readers come into a story and why readers will give a crap about a story and that form is show tell reflect Meaning open with a scene. Don't open with a bunch of description or you telling the reader who you are and they'll be like, I don't care. So you need to open with a gripping scene. It doesn't have to be bells and whistles, but just immerse them immediately in some moment that has a vibration. And that's the showing moment. And then the tell is, well, now what's the information? I've been living in this house for 20 years or, you know, we'd recently gotten divorced or whatever. So there's plenty of telling, particularly that's another difference between perhaps a short story and an essay is the ratio of showing and telling is different in an essay. It allows for a little bit more telling and then reflect is so what, 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 what about what this is about? So it's a very reductive formula that show, tell, reflect, because usually it's show, tell, show, tell, show, tell. And my essays are very scenic, almost like short stories. But in the end, there has to be some articulation of earned by the essay about how you're different, how your mental landscape as the narrator of this story is a little bit different. What have you learned or realized or rearticulated? And so that form really helps, but you don't want it to look formulaic. So you want to kind of hide that. Often you want to open in scene and close in scene. That's always the way to have a strongest piece, but you don't want it to look again like I'm following essay writing 101, you know, um, even the last words of sentences and paragraphs and certainly of the essay itself, they matter, um, you know, making sure there's no cliches or whatever. So it's um, sizing each scene right or sizing the expository passages right so it's not suddenly like, where'd the story go? So right. There's just so much craft to it. But the beautiful thing is you can teach craft. And if you know craft, you still need to rewrite a billion times, but you can rewrite forward. You, you know, like, oh, I know why I'm bored because I didn't open in scene. I know why this ending just dribbles away because the epiphany already happened and now no one's going to care anymore, you know, about the next 15 scenes after that. So when you have an understanding of the craft, you can rewrite your way forward. And, you know, about 40,000 drafts later, in my case, I get where I want to go. So, but yeah. And, you know, the whole part of that, the whole goal is to make it not sound writerly. At least for me, that's a pet peeve. When I'm reading a book and someone can write beautifully, I'm like, you are so showing off here. You know, and so I lose the story. I lose the 
the immersive quality of good writing. And so you want to write beautifully, but you don't want that to be the first thing the reader notices. You want it to be this lovely after effect that doesn't get in the way of the story. So, you know, who knows if I achieved that, but I certainly worked hard at it. And some of the feedback suggests that I did. And it matters to me to write well, too. It matters a lot. So... Yeah, because as you say, it's almost like you're the you know the book you know party like is twenty forty four is almost like a variety show in the sense that there's there's so many different <laughs> stories to it. Was there yeah. was there one story that you just was the easiest for you to write? Like I have no revisions, like the least amount of revisions because you just yeah. nailed it right away. Um, there's one that's really short and really straightforward, and um, it's called Dear X X Friend, and it's just a letter to a friend that became an ex-friend because of the times we live in, you know, politics sort of cleaved us, but she had been a really good friend. And then we accidentally met in a parking lot and before just crossing a parking lot and before I could remember, oh, wait, I'm mad at you. Oh, wait, you're on the other side. We kind of reunited, you know, had a hug. And it's a really short piece, but it's about me reflecting on that actually in sort of a form of a letter to her saying, well, now what are we? Are we ex-friends? And while I realized that (laughs) we were still not at all back even close to where we were, it was a glimmer. And it it was a glimmer of hope that maybe all the relationships that have been cleaved, you know, over the political landscape and for some other reasons as well, when you can set that aside, you know, you can maybe come together on some common ground. And it was a deeply personal, let's say, because I have trouble setting that aside. But it ambushed me. I just ran into her and, oh, I love this woman. And then I'm like, wait a minute. No, I don't. <laughs> and so that one came together pretty, pretty quickly. But rarely do I know what is the point of writing this story until I really delved into it on the page. And often even it I'm well into the revision process and how it'll read well, but I still don't know what am I trying to say here to give it heft, to make it work. And in the revision stage, sometimes even late revision, I will finally figure it out. And then it's like, oh, thank goodness. And then there's some massaging and whatever. But um, I often don't, all I know is this story has some kind of heartbeat and there's something there. And so I need to tease it out for myself and then, if it never does get teased out, it, it's not an essay. It's not in the book. It's not. Um, so it's a discovery process, which is both a glorious thing and the most nerve wracking thing because you spend so much time on it. And what if there's nothing there? It was just a sort of mildly entertaining story. <laughs> so. was, was, it, was there any of these essays that kind of created some story seeds for you? Like, I want to explore this more, but in like a, a, a larger format. Um, I don't think I've got that novelist or that memoir muscle and I don't have ADD, you know, and I, and I'm, but I do really like the short form in taking these moments, if you will, or, or experiences that might seem kind of small externally and, and recognizing there was something there and teasing it out. And so similar maybe to the fact that the book doesn't have one big honking theme throughout. I don't have one narrative necessarily that is calling to me that says, Joni, write a memoir. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't have a phase in my life that thinks, oh, that's where I really had a growth spurt or, 
you know, was challenged and overcame, you know, the stuff that kind of motivates uh, a beautiful memoir. And I, you know, maybe I just live in fits and spurts, you know, but so I don't, I, I read memoir. I love novels, but I don't at all have a calling at this point to write a longer piece. Right. So, and knows? so the, uh, so the, the title, what's the, the, the origin story of the title of the book? Oh, it's terrible. It's morbid. It's awful. I don't get, I won't give too much away, but the essay setting is, it, it's about my birthday month because I do celebrate my birthday over a whole month and I make a big deal out of it and I encourage gifts and attention. And yet um, it's interesting because in our culture, you know, birthdays are often vilified. And then of course, as you're aging, then it's all about, you know, well, you know, you're not dead yet. You're lucky, you know? So, so it's interesting. It's a reflection. It's a story about me on my birthday or the birthday month, but it's an interesting reflection, I think, on this culture we live in where when someone dies, we go to the celebration of their life. But when they're still alive, all we're doing is counting off the days or years right. before they're dead. And that's always bothered me because, first of all, it's a downer because I love my birthday. And then all these cards from dear people that I love talking about well, you're another year older and closer to death, you know? So that, that title, the party like this 2044 is obviously the title of that essay. And it alludes to, I don't even want to say, but for, for my birthday recently, not only did my friend, one of my friends send me a card, it was just a total downer, but he did my actuarial table. You know, that insurance companies do, you know, to predict how long they're going to have to insure you. And he thought I would love this. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> you know? It was awful how many more years I've got, you know, oh my God, it was awful. But it made for a good essay and, and it helped to to um, bring forth that theme about right. our culture and aging and birthdays and celebrating death but not celebrating life even when we're right. still alive so anyway right. yeah huh. who gives someone an actuarial table for their birthday <laughs> <laughs> i hope you never get one barney it's not really a pleasant thing to read <laughs> well well it's almost but i would see it as as like as like a challenge like all right then i'm gonna beat this see that's what i'd look at it well you know, I luckily it's where I put the pressure, you know, as a writer to to have a good book because I teach writing. I did also put in that same vault that stupid actuarial table he sent me. Right. Because I didn't want it to bug me because it does kind of bug you. You know, there's right. a date hanging over. But I saw this guy, Ed, recently and somehow this came up and he said, oh, don't worry, it's changed now. You actually have more months because I forget what other factors went in. So. Fortunately, it can shift depending on certain things. So that made me right. feel a little bit better. But right. who knows? I don't know. Oh, anyway, either way, the clock is ticking. I got to write a lot more books quickly because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Right. With friends like so, those, you know. Right. <laughs> so, Joni, if people want to learn more about your work and learn more about uh, what you do, where's the best place they could go to? Uh, well, my author website is my name, JoniBCole.com, and I have a bunch of events listed that I'm doing around Vermont and or webinars or other online things. And then my Writer's Center has its own website, which is 
thewriterscenterwrj.com. But they both cross-pollinate. So, um, but yeah, the, the author website's probably the best one. So, right. yeah. Perfect. Well, listen, Joni, you're going to have to come back on when your next book comes out. Cause this has been, this has been a, this has been a, a, a gem of a discussion. I've had a well, time. It's been fun for me, but I wanted you to tell me one of your dad jokes. What do you call the ability to move seabirds with your mind? Pelicanesis. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you so much, Joni. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Barney. I'm glad I got to meet you. Now our paths will probably cross a lot. That's fellow writers for monsters. All right. Thanks so much. I'm working this, on it. I'm working this on it, is so, Who thought that you had such a smart answer embedded in culture and history? This is so yeah, great. You know, I just I just thought dad jokes were just, I don't know, had been around forever, but I guess not. No. Oh, that that the, truly the first, is really interesting. It really is. Yeah. So the, the term dad joke was first used in 1987 in an editorial from like the Gettysburg Gazette was the first time the term dad joke was ever used. So, yeah. <laughs> Does it yeah, just see? kick in when you become a dad? I know you've got three kids. Does it just that humor kick in? It's like an innate thing that 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 blossoms when you become a dad, or is it something you have to work at? I, well, I think what it is is like knowing that you have the ability to playfully embarrass your children. I think it's it comes <laughs> them. <yeah. laughs> no, I'm sorry, that's not exclusive to dads. I could write that's my first longer novel. I could write a book on embarrassing my children. <laughs> Exactly. There's my new theme. Right there. Yeah. Oh, well, I seriously, I appreciate that bit of enlightenment. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. See, this will be the good B-roll I can put at the end of the interview now. So. All right. <laughs> so, well, they'll appreciate it.